0: Sister, I've known some pretty hard cases in my time. You make them all look like putty.
1: You're not talking about a sack of gumdrops that's going to be smashed. You're talking about a dame's life. You may think it's a funny idea for a woman with a kid to stop a bullet for you, only I'm not laughing.
0: Where do you get off being so superior? Why shouldn't I take advantage of her? I wanna live. If you had to step on someone to get something you wanted real bad, would you think twice about it?
1: Shut up. In a pig's eye, you would. You're no different from me. Shut up.
0: Not till I tell you something, you cheap badge pusher. When we started on this safari, you made it plenty clear I was just a job and no joy in it, remember? Yeah, it still
1: goes, double.
0: Okay, keep it that way. I don't care whether you dreamed up this gag or not. You're going right along with this, so don't go soft on me.
1: Once you handed out a line about poor Forbes getting killed because it was his duty. Well, it's your duty too, even if this dame gets murdered. You make me sick to my stomach. Well, use your own sink.
2: Everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not to Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically and also the critics, you know, maybe didn't like. Brad, we are continuing with the Noir Vember theme. And uh we we brought a a can you say classy dame in 2023?
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't I know. I would
1: accept that as a term okay. if we were going to go with it. <laughs> okay,
2: a classy I'm trying to keep the the motif going, but Brad, you want to do the formal introductions. We got we got a very special guest
0: today. Yeah, we have returning uh Sophie from the film the movie struck podcast. Sophia, how are you? Wow. Well,
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back.
0: That's not I'll the answer. only
1: thing.
2: That's not the only <laughs> thing. She's got a few things going on. They, we're talking about the, the, the D&D podcast, too. You got to mention okay. that oh, one, too. Oh, yes.
0: Yes. I'm sorry, nerd. I forgot about your, your D&D podcast. <laughs> Shut up. It's good.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I am also on the podcast Rolling with Difficulty, which is the D&D Planescape adventure, uh, on which I play a character who talks like this the whole time. So I'll spare you that on this podcast.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I, it's it's awesome. I love that podcast. Brad, you need to start listening. to. I recommended it to somebody the other day. Uh, Because we were having a Dungeons & Dragons nerd fest, so I I had to mention that. (laughs) And when we get to the end of the show, I'm I'm sure we're going to talk about PAX, because I think uh, that's a big event coming up for you, right? (laughs) Okay, well, we'll we'll save that for the end. Uh, Brad, film noir. So we're doing something really special tonight, right? It's not just one film noir.
0: We are doing two films because two is better than one, Troy. We were doing Narrow Margin from 1990, and then we were doing the Narrow Margin from 1952.
2: Yes, if you haven't figured it out, the 1990 version is a remake of the 50s version. So uh, what, a, what a great way to talk about two uh, film noirs, one a classic. We'll, we'll see what everybody thinks about the other one. Before we dive into this, Sophia, uh, we mm-hmm. asked you, to participate in this month. But I but I have to ask you from a a I guess, film connoisseur perspective, where do you stand on film noir as a genre, and do you have any favorites?
1: Yeah, um, I am personally a huge fan of mysteries, procedurals, and thrillers. So uh, when I was in film school, and we did our whole film studies unit, and I kind of first got introduced to the idea of film noir as a genre, Uh, Immediately, I was like, oh, this sounds like it could be right up my alley. Um, And I would say that I am definitely biased towards enjoying these movies. You know, I I think that noir as a genre has sort of evolved past what it was in the 50s, where (laughs) it it was a much more tightly defined thing. Um, But those elements of kind of like the gritty, uh, twisty and often a little bit uh, not perverted is the wrong word, but, uh, you know, just a little bit off.
2: Antisocial
1: yeah antisocial yeah. uh kind of storytelling it is still really fun and and i like to see go back to a lot of the movies from the 50s to see how it kind of plays on um uh, more modern films that like to take some of the wider tropes that popped out of the genre um i don't yeah you know there's, oh, there's so many in it my introduction was from the Maltese Fal- falcon which was kind of the emblematic classic for the film mm-hmm. film noir also, really like Born to Kill, Sunset Ooh. Boulevard. Um, anytime you get like a good a good woman committing a crime in in film noir, I am on board.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you hundred percent. I we we have tried to concentrate on neo noir, so mm-hmm. just stuff that would borrow from the same elements, but from the '60s on. Do you have any more recent film noir recommendations um, that you would? I, I don't know when when you discovered it, you're like oh hey, this is sort of scratching that itch from the 40s and 50s of that stuff I liked, but it has a sort of a different feel and a different take in a a modern style.
1: Yeah, you know, um, there's been a string of like, kind of medium level mystery movies recently. Uh, See how they run comes to mind of there are a lot of these elements in here of especially in the way I'm a video editor. So by trade, I look at a lot of editing and uh, in that movie in particular, there's a lot of cuts that are very quick from location to location and they really condense things, which is very much a technique that film noir is popularized. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's that's a fairly recent one that I thought would, had some fun elements in it. Um, but I, I got to admit that there's a lot of film noir that's come out recently, or at least neo noir that's been inspired by some of these 50s, 60s entries that uh, I've missed. So I'm looking forward to this because this was kind of a good excuse for me to go back through my to watch list and say, OK, I've got to we got to do some noir <laughs> <laughs> okay. Catch up for the podcast.
2: So of the two films we're talking about tonight, is this a first time mm-hmm. watch for both of them for you?
1: It was my first time watching the 90s uh, version. I hadn't seen Narrow Margin, but I had seen the Narrow Margin previously.
2: Oh, the original. Okay, what about you, Brad?
0: Uh, this is not the first time for either film for me.
2: Oh, okay. So I had seen the 90s virgin, uh, version quite a few times, but it was a first time watch of the original from the, um, fifties. So, uh, I, I cannot wait to talk about both because I was working in the movie theaters when the nineties came out. So I took the movie poster home, et cetera. And this was one of those, um, early films where I was like, wow, this is kind of like the movies that I liked from the forties and fifties. Wait a second. Um, I think it's a remake of one of those never got around to watch it. So this was a great excuse to I I, honestly, we're talking about the old one because it was an excuse for me to catch up on it. Let's be truthful here. So, um, Brad, let's start with the 1990s one. Usually take us back in time and talk about the release schedule. Uh, one of these movies didn't do so well. So I think it's the first one, right?
0: Yeah. So narrow margin released September 21st of 1990 with a reported budget of $21 million dollars. It's total box office run gives us a return of $10.9 million. So it makes back roughly half its production budget. Um, Opening weekend, Troy, we're looking at fourth place with $3.6 million. That's good enough for fourth place. And it it gets beat out by some pretty big bangers here. We've got number one. We've got Goodfellas, one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, Postcards from the Edge and Ghost are your top three films there. Um, we're looking uh from the critics we're looking at sixty-three percent, and from the audience we're looking at a fifty one percent.
2: Oh goodness, okay.
0: Yes. Um but arguably the greatest review uh ever put to paper or <laughs> the internet is a movie guide, which movie guide for those not familiar is a website that reviews films not for their quality but for their content. Are you hitting my music? Oh, yeah. it's, Thank it's, you, it's sir. Going. It's going and uh yeah so this is a short little uh blurb here i'll just give you the answer it's a negative two. Oh. um and they give us a one sentence well they're all one sentence but this is two lines <laughs> and they couldn't even like narrow it down three to four obscenities so it's either three or four they they couldn't go back and figure it out two instances of graphic violence including a decapitation murder policemen betrayed as corrupt and lying and theft oh that's it that's it hey oh. man i can't make them do more than what they want okay and films released september of 1990 troy you said you're working in the multiplex i did so i'm sure you saw a lot of these we have postcards from the edge yes death warrants
2: yeah oh jean-claude absolutely
0: yes mm. uh fellas. oh yeah Miller's Crossing. Oh, perfect. Dark Angel.
2: Yeah, yeah. Dolph Lundgren. Uh,
0: yes. Uh, and Pacific Heights, King of New York and Texasville. All of them.
2: All All I'm, man, that's that's actually a pretty solid release schedule to be quite honest.
0: Oh, and and Funny About Love. Oh. I'm not sure I know Funny About Why does that uh,
2: sound familiar?
0: Oh, that's uh is that Gene Wilder? Oh yeah. 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 I think you're right. Baby. Yeah. yeah. Isn't there a baby? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know what that is. I think
2: I have that movie poster too. For some reason oh, I, I took it yeah. home. Yeah.
1: You never know what's going to be a hit. Got to take home all the posters you can. Yeah. yeah
2: I, I thought nuns on the run from that time period. Derek Idol thing would be <laughs> huge. And the poster was great, but it didn't do so hot. It'll probably end up on this show. Uh, well, let's talk about the people who made the film starting with those behind the camera. So, so I, I thought this was funny. Like this year, we've had um, directors show up a couple of times and um, Peter Hyams, we've already talked about him just a few episodes ago, episode one fifty one, When we reviewed stay tuned uh, to give everybody just a a little bit of context of where this movie sits in 1986, he had done running scared 88. He done the Presidio narrow margin comes out in 90 stay tuned is 1992. And then he works with Jean Claude in 1994 on time cop. Uh, Sophia, Peter Hyams fan.
1: In in ninety five.
2: Oh, in so, ninety five yeah. too. Yep. Sun Death. Mm-hmm. But are you a Peter Hyams fan?
1: I've seen a couple of his films. Uh Time Cop was the one that I immediately called to mind. But uh, you know, it I like a thriller, so I, I can't be too mad at him when he shows up.
2: Okay. He's uh I, I think we said this on episode one fifty one, probably one of the most underrated directors mm-hmm. from that time period, right, Brad?
0: Yeah, very strong genre director.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. And what's unusual um, about him is when you start looking at the credits to his films, specifically, you know, mid 80s on, you're going to see his name pop up as uh, usually screenplay and cinematography. And that's no different from this one. So from a credit perspective, he not only has director, but he has a screenplay. Obviously, this is um, based on the original film from the 50s. And then he's also a cinematographer on this. So Hyams is known for being a cinematographer on all of his movies pretty much um, since 1984. The other thing to keep in mind is the production company. So there were a couple of logos in the 80s and 90s that when they showed up, you would get excited for. One of those logos um, shows up right in front of this picture, and that's um, Coraco Pictures, right? So it's an independent film studio that existed from 76 to 95 and it was founded by Mario Kazer and Andrew G Vanya. So if you want just a quick list of things that they put out there, uh, we've got the first three Rambo films, Total Recall, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I'm sure you guys have heard about that little independent film, Uh, Basic Instinct, Cliffhanger, Stargate. And the 1995 film, Cutthroat Island, that lost the company $147 million and pretty much bankrupt the company. And we talked about that yep. one early on in episode 40. Yep. So that brings us to the people in front of the camera. Sophia, I want to start with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Gene Hackman. Where, where do you stand on Gene Hackman? He's the star of this thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I didn't realize he was in this. Uh, and as soon as I turned it on, I was worried I had hit play on the French Connection instead. But, uh, oh, okay. <laughs>
2: Is that what you primarily know him from?
1: Yeah, I think that's what comes to mind for me. I did pretty recently go through all of the best picture winners and, uh, that was one of the most recent ones that I watched. So it might've just been front of mind, but, uh, yeah, that's usually where I call to mind for him.
2: Okay. Uh, I think we spent a little time talking about gene when we did Superman four. Is that right, Brad? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So five Oscar nominations. What's interesting is this film sits in between two Oscar wins. So he won Best Actor for Mississippi Burning in 1988, and he won Best Supporting Actor for Unforgiven in 1992. So in between there, they were trying to make him a bit of an action star. So keep in mind, he's about 60 years old when he's doing this film. And uh, in between Mississippi Burning and Unforgiven, he does The Package in 1989, which I think is directed by Andrew Davis and stars Tommy Lee Jones as well. Solid thriller, really good. He does a terrible, terrible film with Dan Aykroyd called Loose Cannons in 1990, same year as this one, Um, has a bit part in Postcards from the Edge in the same year, 1990, Mm -hmm. obviously narrow margin, Uh, follows it up in 91 with a nice little courtroom thriller, class action, and also does a action film with Mikhail Baryshnikov, or um, I, I think that's what his name, Company Business, that came out in 91.
0: Oh the Nicholas Meyer movie. Yeah yeah yeah.
2: Uh unfortunately he retired from acting. So he hasn't been in anything since early 2000s I don't think. And he is now an author. So his most recent book Pursuit was published in 2013. So he's written some fiction and historical uh books as well.
0: And nothing makes me happier than seeing like a picture of Gene Hackman just alive and well and just, you know, being like an older man but just looking super happy and it's awesome just to see him knowing that he's alive and mm-hmm. still kicking. Yeah.
1: It's nice to see him retire gracefully and go continue to make art that he loves, but uh, get to be an old man and enjoy that a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's
2: he's had an amazing career. I mean, if, if you look at the stuff from the 70s, 80s, 90s, probably the 70s and 80s alone, I mean, he, he's just made oh, some yeah. really solid stuff across the board.
0: I mean, arguably he's in, I mean, the conversation is one of the greatest films ever made.
2: This is true. This is true. Uh, the other person that, uh, is our main star is Ann Archer as Carol Honeycutt. So Oscar nominee for best supporting actress in fatal attraction from 1987. I think a lot of people know her from that film. Um, around this time period, she was, she was very busy. She's in another neo-noir movie the same year with Tom Berenger called love at large. And then does uh, Narrow Margin, Eminent Domain, and follows that up with Patriot Games in 92. I don't know how familiar you are with Ann Archer. Me personally, she goes way back to the 70s and 80s. So before Fatal Intraction, the the two films I always think of her with is um, a Chuck Norris vehicle in 1978 called Good Guys Wear Black. She was Mm. kind of the love interest in that. And then uh, we've talked about this film, Brad, specifically when we talked about Stay Tuned. But it's this John Ritter film from 1980 called Hero at Large, which um, she's the love interest in that as well.
0: Oh, yeah. She's blonde in that movie, right?
2: Yeah. I, well, brownish I so. blonde. Yeah, okay. Dirty Is it dirty blonde? Is that what they call it? Sure. Yeah. All right. I don't know. Was hair she, colors.
0: Was she uh, cast in this film because she looked so much like the woman, uh, Mary Windsor from the original?
1: really does it, it's if you have you seen close. the I mean
0: they look almost <laughs> the exact same
2: they do they do um I don't know Ann Archer just seemed if, if you kind of look at the 90s she just became this I don't know strong I, I don't want to say housewife uh role she was getting these strong housewife roles or, or whatnot I don't know if fatal attraction kind of pigeonholed her into that to a certain degree but um yeah, I mean, I've, I've always liked her. I don't know if you guys followed her, if she's somebody that when you pop up, you even care. I don't know.
0: Well, she got involved in like the Tom Clancy stuff, so Patriot Games, Clearing Present Ooh. Danger. She was the, wasn't she the wife in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, so, yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, just real quick, we'll throw some other names out there. James P. Seeking as Nelson. He's the main bad guy. Then you get Nigel Bennett as Jack Wooten, he's the main bad guy's main henchman. Um JT Walsh is in this briefly as Michael Tarlow. M Emmett Walsh, I don't think they're related. He's in this briefly too as Detective. No, they're, they're not related. S- yeah, they're sergeant. Not related. That's right. Detective Sergeant <laughs> Dominic. I think Emmett Walsh Benty. should be his dad. <laughs> that's true or or long-lost uncle maybe. Yeah. Okay. And uh Susan Hogan as Catherine Weller. So Real quick, just a little little something about the production development. Peter Hyams got the idea to remake the film after happening upon it on, on late night television. He asked his then-employer Paramount Pictures to acquire the rights, although the project later found a home at a different studio. Hyams said, I don't think the movie was terrific. <laughs> this quote cracks me up. I don't think the movie was terrific, but I think the idea of people being stuck on a train was wonderful. Star Gene Hackman, who had recently starred in another noir reimagining, No Way Out, was attracted to the character's agreeable demeanor and the fact he did not shoot anyone throughout the film, which contrasted with the more aggressive types generally shown in adventure films. And Gene also uh, contributed some incidental details, such as the glasses and the water pistol sequence. Mm -hmm. Narrow margins climax on top of the train was filmed between Howe Sound and Chickamas Canyon near Squamish in British Columbia. It took three weeks to capture and could only be filmed a couple of hours at a time due to the impossibility of diverting the area's regularly scheduled traffic. The film's stars did perform part of the rooftop scenes themselves, being secured by cables concealed under their clothes. So when you get to that last sequence and you go, wow, that kind of looks like them, that is them. Uh, and according to Hackman, this was the first stunt ever performed by co-star Ann Archer. If, if anybody's re- is, is interested in this film, Kino Lorber has just put out this beautiful Blu-ray of the film. And it has two audio commentaries, one by director Peter Hyams and another one by journalist and critic Peter Tongit. And uh, if you go to Blu-ray.com, they did a, a very extensive um, review of this release and uh, gave it a very highly recommended. So it's pretty much the top rating you can get in terms of picture quality audio and stuff like that. So if you're fans what's the surround fan, sound
0: like Troy? you know, you want to tell us what's the surround sound. It like? doesn't,
2: it's, it's good. It's a solid. I mean, you got to remember this, this is something from the nineties. They're not going to spend right. a lot of money to remaster it, put in amos or anything. So it's, you know, it's a good, it's a good Dolby soundtrack. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's, let's kick it over to our guest. Uh, Sophia, this was the first time watch for you, right?
1: Yes. So I'd seen the original. I uh, had not seen the remake, if we can call it that. There was a lot changed from the original. Oh, uh, yeah. For, I think the better, because frankly, I enjoyed this way more than I thought I was going to going into it.
2: Oh, really? OK. Well, yeah. kick it off. I mean, where where did you land on this thing and, and um, what did you think of it?
1: Yeah, you know, I might be a little biased because I do think that the train might be the single most perfect set piece for a film and they were stuck on a train the entire movie more or less. Um, but I you know, it's not my favorite movie of all time, but I think that there was a lot to really enjoy here. And the things that they did change from the original, uh specifically in kind of lengthening the time that they're on the train and making that really the finale of it, uh, allowed them to really play with a lot more subterfuge throughout there's a lot of really interesting and avoiding just having shootout moments where you know gene hackman is sort of playing with the actual set that he's on to dodge uh the gaze of the guys coming after them and uh to really get to know the other characters on the train a little bit and have their uh moments of interaction um i thought that that was often very clever a lot of it is taken from the original there's some you know a very important child who shows up another woman on the train hiding in some of the other train compartments and having to stall for time. Uh, but I think that they managed to keep a lot of the elements that were really interesting in the narrow margin and then add things to it and change a few key points to make this a much more cohesive story or at least a more engrossing one for me.
2: Okay. So how, how does it stand, I guess, in terms of just it being something that is is film noir? I mean, it, it's classified as neo-noir, but how does it live up to just something in that genre? Or is it more of an action-adventure film?
1: Yeah, I kind of went back and forth on this a little bit because I do think that the key element and of this like contained set that they're on, in a way, with the train and how much of it does kind of revolve around just this constant tense nature of it, uh, pushes it into a little bit of a thriller zone um. but at the same time there's a, a lot that they're drawing from that is very emblematic of the neo-noir you know you've got the kind of mystery is the wrong word you kind of know who's uh, who done it the whole time but <laughs> but those more mysterious elements there's a lot of the twists and turns kept from the original film that uh, still convey a lot of the same attitude. So I I would say it still qualifies as a work of new noir, but it definitely starts to with some of the more additional action scenes edge into thriller a little bit.
2: Okay. That's totally fair. Okay, Brad, what do you think about this one?
1: Yeah, I think
0: this is a a study in how you do a remake of a film because in, in 1952, we're looking at a runtime of 71 minutes. Mm-hmm. Here, we're building out the first act. We're, we're literally giving... The act that kicks off this film, uh, we're witnessing that. So there is no mystery, but we are there is some mysterious things going on with the henchmen and who's good and who's bad. Um, and then when we get on the train, it it you know, it, it there's some same beats. Uh, the big guy talks about, you know, the only person who loves a fat man <laughs> is uh, which I, I, I found that really funny um, that they kind of kept some of that stuff. I I really enjoy this because it it, like a train it, it just goes and there's not a whole lot of, of sort of messing with the momentum. It, you know, I long for the days where a film can just be 95 minutes and we're in and out and it's, you know, you've got a first, second and third act We're we're moving along. um, And there's not a whole lot of waste. Like, I don't know if you could cut out anything in this film to make it any better, like, I think it's like perfectly executed and it, it, it's undoubtedly like held together by Hackman and how strong he is. But I thought Anne Archer is really good. The other characters, the other women, um, the kid, like, you know how I get with kids sometimes, Troy, like, yeah, if yeah, it's I... an annoying kid. I'm like, they should just <laughs> throw this kid off the train. I Um,
2: that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, every time I see it, this is terrible. Every time I see a child in a film, I'm like, how's Brad going to react to this kid?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I, you know, the kid was, was totally fine. Um, but it, it, it really has a lot of thrills and a lot of, you know, even the third act gets, gets its action beats in there too. So I I think it's kind of got everything, uh, but it also still, plays in the neo-noir setting enough to where it fits into that. But I I just think it just really does what it does, but it does it really well. Like, I don't think you could argue that this is the greatest film ever made. Oh, no, no. no, no. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely one that because of its runtime and because of, of how well it moves and how it understands momentum. Like, I think you could, I could watch this thing again tomorrow and be totally fine because it just like the way I think this is like one of the most rewatchable films we've done just how the way it it, it just kind of lays out the plot and, and goes. Um, I really, really like the setup and like Sophia was saying, you put things on a train, you know, the train is constantly moving, but we can't really get off like, but, we can see the set. Like it's different than a plane, right? Because a plane, you can't really see outside here. We know where we are setting wise. Um, so, I, I do. I, I agree. Like, I think I love train movies. I was thinking about that while watching <laughs> this. It's like, man, I really like train movies. Uh, it's
1: a perfect set piece. Every movie should have a train in it. It would just make them all you're better. You're not wrong. Cause <laughs> I
0: just rewatched Dead Reckoning and I was like, the train sequence is one of the most badass things I've seen. So, um, do you th-
2: do you think it? So, with train sequences, I agree 100%. They can be extremely stupid. Maybe thrilling. it's like
0: my, you know, we were all kids at one point in time and trains were like the coolest thing ever. We just never grew <laughs> out of that.
2: That's true. Uh, do, do they, so with, with train geography and train logic, I think sometimes it can be, um, problematic for the wrong director or screenwriter, right? Because you basically movement wise are moving linear one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You can go on top of the train, but you usually save that for the third act action sequences, yes. right? So pretty much you're, you're left either just moving
0: towards camera or away from camera. That's yeah, like
2: pretty much, it. um, Do you think it handles it well or does it get confusing at any point?
1: I think that Narrow Margin does a pretty good job of handling it. Uh, There's a lot of discussion both in the original and in the 90s version about whether the goons in question are in a car ahead or behind of where Gene Hackman is. Uh, And there's a little bit of swapping between the sleeper cabins. Uh, but for the most part, I think I have a very good grasp as a viewer on where all the key characters are in relation to each other, or at the very least, the key characters that Gene Hackman knows the location of in relation to each other. I don't think it's important that we know like the specific number of cars on the train and which right. one yeah. everyone's at any given point. I think this movie does a good job of balancing telling us the information we need about the geography of the train and also kind of localizing it to whoever our point of view character is, which is almost always Gene Hackman, but occasionally Ann Archer.
0: Okay. Yeah, I never, I never understand the, the uh, geography is kind of a bad word, but like <laughs> the, where everyone is, but I think that's also by design because you're always wondering where everyone is. And I think if, if, you know, they specifically said, oh, they're in this car, they're in this car, they're in this car, it gives away the mystery quite a bit. <laughs> so I, I do like the confusion that a train also gives you. Um, because they're all connected. So it's like, at some point in time, you can't go, like, if you're at the very end of the, the, the train and I keep going back at some point in time, I'm going to run into you. So like, it's inevitable that the number of exits basically zero. So if we go through this car, these cars enough, we're going to find you. Uh, and, and I think it does that really well, but it keeps, it, it kept me like wondering where everyone was. Yeah. I,
2: I, I think now, Sophia, you, you live on the East Coast. You you you've mm-hmm. taken the train, right?
1: Very familiar with the Amtrak Northeast Regional, yes. Okay,
2: so me too, because that's how I get to New York. Brad, have have you been on any of like the Amtrak's or anything like that?
1: I mean, I
0: went I vacationed in New York a few years ago for two weeks and by the end of it I knew the subway pretty well. So
2: Okay. Yeah. So I've I've ridden the train system now in Italy. And what I always find interesting about train when I get on a train, and if I think about a train film, I'm like how do you not run into whoever is chasing you constantly because you, you sit on a train and you look that way, you look behind you and it's, it's all very linear and I'm always amazed at some of these train films, how they build suspense of you really can't go anywhere unless you're going to crawl on the outside of it. Right. But trying to hide from somebody in that location when there's not a lot of room, not a lot of compartments to hide into Uh, I think that can get botched very easily in the wrong hands um, and either become confusing or unbelievable. Like, I I think most of these films fall into that. Could that really happen? Or could you really, you know, avoid such and such if you've ever actually been on a train? Um, I I think this one handles it pretty well.
0: Well, I was also thinking like something like Unstoppable, uh, the Tony Scott film, which is about a runaway train. And you, you, I Knowing the source material, I was like, I, I don't think they're going to go that route with the train where it like all of a sudden becomes a runaway train um, and we have to do something to like get it to stop and then we can get off of it. But they they kind of keep the train basically going. Everything is moving as it should like the the, the plot doesn't do anything to the train. The train is just going um, and they're not really doing anything to to really s- to slow it down in a way. So it's going to get to its destination. We know that. It's whether or not our our heroes can can overcome the adversity before we get off. I, I the do tra- th- the, tra- the train.
2: I do right. think the smart thing on this is the environment that the train's going through, mm-hmm. because you are unless you're the train is stopping at one of those towns, you're not getting off of that train. I mean, you're dead in the mountains um, on some cliffs. Everything else the, the the visuals look fantastic. Anytime the camera pans out, but I also think it does a great job of you're stuck on that train. Like you're not, you're not mm-hmm. jumping off the train at any point in time. Cause you're just, your head's going to get smashed on all the rocks and whatnot. Um, so Roger Ebert, everybody familiar with Roger Ebert?
0: Uh, the, he's one of the reasons why I love film, but give it to me, Troy.
2: <laughs> okay. He did not like this film <gasps> at really all.
0: Done.
2: So in the nineties, <laughs> um, when you watched Siskel and Ebert, you're like, well, what did they like? And, and, I, I would say I'd I I don't, I don't know how you two feel. I I usually sided with Roger over Gene. Where did where did you guys land?
0: It always depended. Roger was never much of a comedy guy. Uh Gene Gene could 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 like a comedy. Um so it just kind of depended on the genre. Okay.
1: Yeah, very similarly. Like I feel like it, for lack of a better word, sometimes Roger didn't seem to love as much lowbrow stuff, which I find I have a very high tolerance for and You know, then maybe you're gonna give Gene a little grace, but uh, Roger's usually on the level.
0: Okay. But Roger also, like, if you didn't have like strong character development and stuff, like Mm -hmm. he was out. Like he needed like he needed some sort of character development to really latch on to characters.
2: So I'm gonna I'm gonna read something from his review. I w I wanna get your guys' reaction to this. All right. So this is how his review starts. Narrow margin is a clumsy version of the idiot plot dressed up as a high gloss chase thriller. The idiot plot of course is any plot that would be resolved in five minutes. If everyone in the story were not an idiot and rarely has there been a film in which more idiots make more mistakes than in this one. That's how that review starts and it goes downhill from there.
0: So I'm guessing his problem is the woman is a mystery to the bad guys I think his problem is
2: all of the character choices in this film, uh, if if you read the re- the review, there are some things he calls out that hey, this is this is pretty good. but he keeps talking about the choices that the characters make in this film only serve the purpose of moving a very threadbare plot forward versus they don't feel realistic. Like he does not think this film would play out in any kind of realism. And so when he talks about the idiot plot, he's basically saying, well, you wouldn't have a film if somebody had just done the common sense thing in the first five minutes and they didn't do it in the five minutes, there's going to be a choice to come along. And if the same person had made the right decision, well, then the movie ends at 10 minutes. And if they didn't do it at 10 minutes, well, heck at the 20 minute mark, something's going to happen. And as long as somebody's not an idiot, the movie's over.
0: What's the difference between idiot plot and economical storytelling? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. I just.
0: Yeah. I mean, do do
2: you guys agree with that? And I, it doesn't sound like you guys agree based on your comments. But how how do you defend narrow margin from that type of criticism?
0: It's a noir film. I mean, a lot of times your 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 private eyes and stuff from noir films are always one step you know, away from something Mm -hmm. or the bad guys are always one step away. And that just kind of how it works. I, you know, I don't, I, I can see where he is coming from and I would agree with him if it wasn't executed. Well, I think for me, I always see criticism way more strongly if the movie is bad, but if I feel like, Oh, it executed it well, it, yes, it made these choices, but these choices ended up being, Executed really well and made the film better. I I tend to uh, maybe be a little bit more lenient. I don't agree with Roger. Um, <laughs> okay, but you know, because because saying like, oh, when everyone's an idiot, it's like I I get what he's trying to say, but ultimately I, I don't I don't agree. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think I I also don't agree with Roger on this one. I can see where he's coming from, and I feel like part of the problem might have been. Um, watch too many movies syndrome because there were definitely moments for watching this i'm like the blonde girl is going to be a double agent she's definitely with the bad guys you don't know how many are on this train but i recognize watching that that that's just being a little too genre savvy and i don't think that that necessarily makes the characters choices out of character or part of an idiot plot um there are definitely moments where you could make an argument for this being an idiot plot uh specifically with Anytime Gene Hackman doesn't recognize who in his department is a double agent, that can get very frustrating. But again, he's like a fish out
0: of water, though. Like he doesn't know these people.
1: (laughs) It doesn't make like so little sense or is so poorly executed that I think the film as a whole would qualify as that. And for the most part, I think that there's a lot of very clever choices that the characters are making that would argue against them being uh, involved in this idiot plot, as it were.
0: Okay. Well, now the the blonde going after uh, a 60 year old Gene Hackman (laughs) may, maybe I can see the idiot plot there. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. look, come on. What do you have against Gene Gene Hackman? I mean, nothing when he's in the conversation in 1974, (laughs) but when he's in narrow margin in 1990, he's doing
2: action movies like in in his sixties. To me, that's, that's awesome. I mean, he's not
0: Daniel Craig. He's, he's Gene (laughs) Hackman. No offense.
2: Oh boy. I, OK, I'm just saying. All right. Well, I, I would contend I guess if I were to counter it, uh, I, I would contend that 80 percent of the films that we probably watch um, could be resolved in five minutes and have some form of idiot plot. Uh, I, I don't think film, not all films, and especially let's call it the genre films, uh, were supposed to be hyper realistic and focused on details of like, well, this is how that would actually play out. And I, I would always use the example of courtroom dramas. Um, I don't think any courtroom drama, I mean, this would be a good question for Jose, like how many of these courtroom drama films actually would play out that way in the real world? I, I would probably contend not many. Yeah. Um,
0: but, but most people don't know how the courtroom works. And so you can make it dramatic and only 1% of your audience will know whether or not it's, you're making the film for. 99% of the audience it's not the 1% that knows what's going on. Troy, I mean we see this in banking movies and business movies all the time we're like well that's that's not how That's not that's how not risk how analytics works. work. That's, yes, that's not how that works. You know, but no one no one cares cuz we're nerds. It's not but, dramatic but, like, enough. It, yeah. Uh
2: well it's funny so I know Brad you've been doing this too we're we're trying to get you know some film noir watched. So I run across this one in a, in a Kino Lorber box set and it's uh, called, he ran all the way from 1951 and it stars um, John Garfield and Shelley Winters. So the whole premise is John Garfield knocks over a payroll. His partner gets shot. He's on the run and uh, cops don't know who he is and he's hiding out and he comes across Shelley Winters and they, you know, strike up a conversation at a swimming pool nonetheless. And uh, cause he's hiding out in a swimming pool to avoid the cops so, uh, he's just, you know, Hey, I'll take you home. Da, da da Next thing you know, um, John Garfield ends up taking her entire family hostage and, uh, thinks that's the only way he's going to get free, but everybody gets to go to work and the kids get to go to play at the park and it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, they'll be like, well, I gotta, I gotta go to my shift. Well, okay, go to your ship, but don't talk to the cops. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to be here with your wife. And then Shelly Winters is like, I got to go like to the bakery. Well, okay. Don't, you know, go to the bakery, but don't do anything silly. And, and that's the whole film. I mean, everybody's coming in and out of this apartment and this guy, if they had called the cops, it would have just been over. Right. Uh, but, but here's the thing. It's, it is a great example of the idiot plot. And I feel like film noir, just like action films and horror films, et cetera, they're filled with that, I guess but it really comes down to the execution yeah, piece. Just go
0: out the front door. Don't go in the basement. Just go out the front door. You'll be totally <laughs> yeah, fine.
2: You know, you hear that scary sound, just go, well, I'm not the curious one. And mm-hmm. you leave, no, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not a hero. Nope. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about, can they develop tension? Can you, you know, suspend uh, reality for a little bit? Do the characters become interesting? Um. And, and I feel like narrow margin, I think you guys have, have kind of said this. I'll, I'll probably take it in a different analogy. It's a it's the hostess cupcake of film noir. I mean, it's mm. it's not going to be like one false move or The Maltese Falcon or DOA or um, Double Indemnity or, or some of the classics. But to me, it it does feel like quality junk food, right? So it's entertaining junk food, and it fits into what a lot of the B roll uh, film noir ended up being for the '40s and '50s. Like this would fit perfectly in that time period which makes sense because the original it kinda,
0: actually it did, right? it, it did,
2: but the original, you know, was a, a B roll. Right. So, um, and I, I think it does the, some things that elevates it, I guess, above the typical thriller. And in this case, uh, it, it really comes from Gene Hackman. I think you guys have, have mentioned this, his performance pretty much elevates the whole thing. There are some memorable tense exchanges that I think are really good. And, um, there's really two standout action sequences for the nineties that I don't think this film gets a lot of praise for it. Helicopter
0: shootout. Yeah.
2: That, I mean, it
0: starts with a following chase. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you get um, the shootout that unfolds, uh, unfolds to the car, helicopter chase through Mm -hmm. the mounts. And I, I think I read somewhere that whole sequence was reused for a treat Williams action film that went to direct to video. Like they took Mm -hmm. that sequence and used it again. And then, um, the train sequence at the end with them climbing outside of it, on top of it, the fighting, all that other stuff. Uh, I thought that was actually pretty thrilling. Like there's some, is, uh,
0: is the end of speed, uh, when Keanu Reeves says, yeah, but I'm taller. Is that a callback to when, uh, Gene Hackman calls the lady tall at the end? You no, know I like about you. You're tall. So then you, she gets-
2: you think speed stole from narrow margin? Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe it's important
1: to pay homage to those yeah, that came before I'm taller. Yeah.
2: Um, I, 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 I do want to highlight a couple. I don't know what you guys think about these scenes, his guilt trip, uh, conversation in the car at night talking about, um, why she needs to testify and his partner dying. I thought that was pure Gene Hackman gold.
1: Mm-hmm. Like only
2: he can mm-hmm. deliver that and just really make her feel like crap um and i love when the bad guys try to bribe him and his whole response to that and specifically you know hey the reason why i like to do my job is i like to look across the courtroom and see the guy adjusting his you know collar because he can feel everything coming in around him uh and and even the little comedic moments of him deputizing the kid i mean those three sequences by themselves are like oh yeah this is why gene hackman has been nominated so, so many times and wins academy awards I think he takes this material that if anybody else had done it, it it would have felt pedestrian and um, he makes it his own and and it adds to the tension of the scenes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think he does a really good job of pulling off a pretty untraditional action hero throughout this film. And a lot of that comes from, you know, he's an older actor. So, you know, he's not you don't expect him to be doing these crazy physical stunts or anything. So he's pulling off some with the exception of, you know, kind of the beginning action sequence, in the end simpler action moves, little tricks and trades. But I think what really sells it is like you were saying with those more human moments where he's, uh, you know, staring down the guys trying to bribe him or interacting with this child in a very kind of playful and like friendly way. And I-, I think that he brings something to that character that your more traditional gritty noir uh, detective police officer who we'll see in the narrow margin, the original, uh, kind of loses. And in a way that I think Gene Hackman actually elevates this to a character I was invested in and cared about way more than, uh, from the original.
2: That's a good point. He, he does, um, effortlessly, it feels like go from the action sequences to some of those comedic moments to the, to the intense moments. And, and he just, it, it feels very organic. It feels natural for the character. I like how they try to explain his ability to be this everyman action when they just have this throwaway throwaway line when they're talking about his background and just saying, "Oh yeah, you served in the Marines," so you're like, "Well, that makes sense." I mean, of course, yeah, he's he's got army experience or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right; it's that everyman action quality that uh, I I think makes it thrilling because I mean that you talk about superhero films or or the Arnold Schwarzenegger films, et cetera. They're fun to watch but it's very hard to relate to him. Whereas you can kind of put yourself into this scenario because he's what a deputy general, or he's, he's basically a lawyer he's
1: assistant. He's a district uh, attorney, district attorney. Yeah. A district oh, yeah.
2: attorney. Um, and he's kind of put in a situation where he has to outthink everybody. And, um, you know, if he goes to blows, it's, it's not pretty, it's very messy. Uh, and, and that that adds to the tension. Absolutely. Was there anything that you didn't like? about the film
0: Uh, not really no like i like i said like there's nothing in this runtime that i'm cutting out
1: even the shitty kid
0: like i I thought the kid was
1: (laughs) i think this kid is a dramatic improvement over the kid in the 50s i have to give the kid in the 90s some credit on that one um problematic headdress that kid is wearing
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh in the 50s Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't wait to get there. No, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, even the sequence where I guess he, he walks in on the uh, cabin thinking it's his and you get that. Um, is it a Karen moment? Would you call that a Karen moment, even though he barged She's, in?
0: I mean, oh, to there. be fair, <laughs> she he violates her space, Troy. Yeah. Yes.
1: But I think that's also a great example of him being particularly clever with the geography of the train, because you see him poke his head outside and notice the guy coming down the corridor and having to hide by staying in that compartment. So he's drawing out the conversation. Is she ju- maybe justified in being a little freaked out that this guy keeps coming back into their cabin and interacting with her child? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I think the scene is very like, I wouldn't cut that from the film because I think it's uh, important early on uh, to establish how he's going to try and use the train to his advantage.
2: Yeah. The cat and mouse aspects of the whole mm-hmm. um, proceedings. What did you guys think about the title sequence? I, I thought it was kind of unique for this film.
1: I don't know that I remember the title super well if I'm being honest. So
2: all, all you see, <laughs> it, it, I, I don't, the best way to describe it is it's basically starting with an image that as it pans out, it goes to the title of narrow margin where you get the credits and you get this very dramatic music. It really, at least for me, I got this sort of De Palma, almost horror movie vibe mm. from that and just saying, okay, that's an interesting way to start your film because it just from the music cues and you get that narrow margin, I guess, which is, uh, it looks like a tunnel, but it's actually her face, um, witness, witnessing the murder or something that's kind of superimposed within the title sequence. I thought that was an interesting way to start the film. And I think it just kind of sets the, Hey, this is a thriller. Um, there are going to be some comedic moments into it, but it, it really sets the stage that almost, um, elevates the murder that happens in the beginning to a certain degree.
0: I mean, it might be a bad sign that I like Sophia. I I really don't remember much of it. So,
2: <laughs> okay. Can't be that great. All right. Well, did I, did you, I do want to point out this one shot. There was one shot in the film that I thought was fantastic and was so film noir. It was after the murder occurs. And she's hiding behind the door in the shadows and the way the light just hits a part of her face and highlights just the front of it. Mm -hmm. And the rest of her is hiding while the guy's coming up on the other side of the door. Uh, I wish there were more sequences like Mm -hmm. that through the film. Like
0: homages to like the black and white noir stuff. A little bit. Because the harsh, harsh shadows and stuff.
2: Yeah. The the only thing I'll say, and and I actually think it works is between that title sequence, which you guys don't remember um going into the first so murder memorable. yes going into the first murder and then you get you get this play on light and shadow um and then you get this action sequence i i think it moves perfectly and then goes to the train and then comes to that third act with another action sequence i just wish there were a little bit more tense moments there seem to be some of it at play at night when they're having some exchange talking about the death of the cop and he's kind of guilt tripping her you get a little play on shadows etc um, it's there. I guess my only criticism is I would have liked a little bit more of that because it, it comes out so strong in the beginning. And it seems to lose that for some of the the action elements. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with you there. I think if they were going to change anything about this movie, pushing the style a little bit to play with some of those uh, dramatic noir lighting elements, because you know you're you in this very familiar set piece by the end of it, and we don't necessarily need to see. I think the train fight on top being brightly lit, so that when you go through the tunnels, it's plunged in the blackness, is great. But some of the interior pieces in the middle probably could have been pushed a little bit stylistically. Okay.
2: Well, uh, real quick, we always ask the question. I think I know where everybody's going to land. Um, we just got talking about 1990s narrow margin, the remake. It bombed. But uh, I'll start with you, Sophia. Is is this film a bomb truly, or does it deserve a second chance?
1: I think it just had some tough competition when it came out and you should give it a second chance because I had a much better time with this than I was expecting to. I think it's a really tightly made, well-made thriller, uh, neo-noir. It has some fun elements. There's you know, a great set piece in this train and uh, a fantastic performance from Gene Hackman. I think it's a good time. It's worth a watch.
2: Okay. So is this, this would be something you'd recommend to others? Absolutely. Okay. What about you, Brad? Where, where do you land on this one?
1: Yeah,
0: man. I, I really had a lot of fun with this. And if, you know, tomorrow I was like, I want to watch a train movie, like the marrow margin, I would be moving up my list. So, or marrow margin, uh, move up my list. So I I really enjoyed it. It is not a bomb for me. I mean, it it just got the good fellas came out like the same, (laughs) same weekend. They had no chance.
2: I I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish more people would see this. I hope more people buy that Blu-ray. It's really cool. Blu-ray. It's got a lot of special features on it, but the the commentaries are fantastic. But uh it's make you it unanimous. It's not a bomb. So how about a quick break? And when we come back, we'll talk about its source material. I'm really excited about um, this one because I, I'm not as cool as you two. It was a first-time watch for me. So uh, I feverishly wrote down a lot of notes on this one. Um, but, okay, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: In the old mail car was fearless Fred, guarding a precious sack. When the bandits appeared from everywhere, our hero to attack. The fight was over, just like that, and up spoke fearless sack in hand. I'm awfully sorry we had this spat, but this is Toddy, the chocolate drink that's just grand.
0: Yes, Toddy, the delicious chocolate drink in a can does taste grand. Ice cold or steaming hot, Toddy hits the spot. With everybody. During intermission, at our snack bar, or in your car, see how much better those hot dogs or that popcorn tastes with toddy.
2: Mm Mmm, delicious. This is Eddie Egan, retired detective, New York City Police Department. They made a movie about me a couple of years ago about an international drug bust. It was called The French Connection. That was just one of the many cases I broke. Now, Paramount Pictures has made a new movie inspired by my exploits when I busted up a mob in Harlem running guns to Puerto Rico. It's called Badge 373. That was my badge number, and I'm proud of it. Starring in the picture is Robert Duval, as Detective Eddie Ryan, and myself. I play a cop in this one, too. Badge 373's got it all, including the gun I carried in my sock, the crazy bus chase through Spanish Harlem, and lots of arrests.
1: Because in badge 373, three, everyone goes when the whistle blows.
2: Badge 373, three. in color rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Uh, doing something a little bit different because usually when we take a break, now we're getting to share the thoughts of the film and we spend a lot of time talking about um, the first movie. So from here on out, let's, let's talk about the original Brad. Do you have any, do you have any material for us uh, upon release for Just a um, 52? little bit?
0: Um, released May 2nd of 1952. Uh, ironically, Troy was four years old when this movie came out. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's funny.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Uh, with a reported budget of a hundred or two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And Troy, we are looking at a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics and then eighty-eight percent with the audience.
2: Wow. Did you guys expect that from a critical perspective?
0: I was surprised at a hundred percent. Um yeah. <laughs> and but you know, a nineteen fifty two black and white movie on a train, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. I I can, I can see it. I can see it. Um, but yeah, kind of shocking. Hey, I mean, but also with the audience score of 88, still really high too there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm real curious. Where did,
2: did you guys just know about this and watched it as part of like a, Hey, I'm knocking off some film noir or what, what led you to watch this to begin with? Or do you even remember?
0: Well, my grandfather worked for Norfolk Southern, which is a railroad company. Um, and basically anything that was involved trains I was seeing. So for some reason, I just remember watching this with my dad. I, I I don't remember if it was like a VHS situation, but I'm like, I don't know if a lot of this film noir was on VHS, uh, but maybe it was like, turner classics or something i i don't know but i just remember watching this with my dad um a long time ago okay do you, do you remember
2: sophia
1: yeah i i think i just stumbled across this on like turner classic movies or something one night and stuck through with it because i was curious about noir um I, I went through a phase a little bit where i was just watching as much noir as i can get my hands on and it all sort of blurred together at some point, very smart but. Yeah.
2: That's a cool face. I like that face.
1: It was a fun face to have. I should I'm thinking I should bring it back. <laughs>
2: okay. Um so our director here is Richard Fleischer. Uh there is an uncredited. If you go to IMDb, you'll see uncredited William Cameron Menzies. We'll talk about that in a second. Um Sophia, are you familiar with Richard Fleischer at all? Really interesting filmography. I don't know if you know much about him.
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've seen a bunch of his films in the past but uh i think he's he's like you said really interesting filmography he kind of covers a wide spectrum of genres and budgets and
2: he did everything yeah (laughs) we we talked about him i think brad on episode 121 when we did amityville 3d he he directed that
0: oh that's right that is a oh my god that is a boy yeah it's (laughs) that's depressing now that i remember that and like wow he's got Fantastic films in his filmography and that film. Well, he's got,
2: he's got some, it, it's just crazy. If you, if you sit down and go look at it, I mean, 62 films and shorts, uh, around this time period. So he's doing what they would call like the B pictures. It wasn't the A list stuff. So they're just cranking these things out. So in 1950, he does armed car robbery in 51. He does, uh, another film uncredited his kind of woman narrow margin comes out in 52. Now we'll talk about when it was actually filmed here in a little bit. Same year, The Happy Time in 52, Arena in 53, and then he kind of hits it big in 54 with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, right? For mm-hmm. Disney. If you go through the rest of his filmography, when you get into the late stage, I mean, we talked about Amy DeVille 3D, but later in his career, I think one of the last like three or four movies he did, he was doing stuff like Red Sonja, um, which was 1985. So his, his career was all over the place in terms of quality. Like you said, well, Sophia, budgets, everything else.
0: I mean, Soylent Green is... Yeah. Also one of the, yeah. yeah, pinnacle films of cinema.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, he's just a crazy filmography. Um, the screenplay is done by Earl Felton with a story by Martin Goldsmith and Jack Leonard and cinematography done by George E. Descant. Now, if... <laughs> If you, if you love film noir, we could, we could spend here all day talking about the people in front of the camera, but I'm just going to read through our cast of players real quick. Charles McGraw as Detective Sergeant Walter Brown, Marie Windsor as Mrs. Frankie Neal, Jacqueline White as Anne Sinclair, Queenie Leonard as Mrs. Troll, David Clark as Joseph Kemp, and Peter Virgo as Denzel. So there's our stars. This is super interesting on production and development. All right, get a load of this. So scenes aboard the train were shot on a soundstage at RKO studios using rear projection for background landscapes. The film was shot in just 13 days and made extensive use of a handheld camera to film within the confined sets without having to remove their walls an innovative practice at the time. According to Richard Fleischer, RKO owner Howard Hughes was so taken with the film. He considered reshooting most of it with Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell and to release it as an A picture. While extensive reshoots did not happen, William Cameron Menzies did film a few additional scenes. That's why he gets that uncredited title. Oh, okay. The Narrow Margin's release was held up for two years after its completion. So it doesn't come out into 52, but it's actually finished in 50. Reasons given for the delay have varied from Hughes' indecision to coaxing the in-demand Fleischer into doing more work for the mogul, Hughes did assign Fleischer to reshoot sections of the Mitchum Russell film, his kind of woman with the screenwriter of margin Earl Felton, providing uncredited rewrites for the latter picture. And uh, here's something I don't know if you guys know about this. This film, the narrow margin received an Oscar nomination for best writing motion picture story at the Academy Awards the year it came out. So I think that's why it gets some of the notoriety from the critics and everything as being hundred percent. And again, okay. since we're talking about physical media and releases, if you get your hands on the DVD copy, there is a fantastic audio commentary by, by director William Friedkin. He does the commentary for the film, and there's some inserts and stuff from Fleischer, the director, as well on it. So it's a great DVD. You should pick it up. You can find it in a box set, or I think Warner Archive uh, releases it on its own. So once again, Sophia, we're going to start with you. This is what your second time watching the film.
1: Yeah, second. Uh, unless I threw it in there at some point, but I'm going to go with second because who can remember these things? <laughs> but, um,
2: uh, I, before yeah. you start, I I, I do I, I do want to ask real quick. Mm-hmm. Is is for anybody who hasn't seen this film? I feel like this film has way more twists than the ninety one. Is that fair?
1: I would say that that's fair. I feel like the nineties one in padding out its runtime a little bit and adding more context to the story kind of negated the need for so many twists. This one basically every five minutes expect something about the situation plot or characters to change. Okay, Uh, So
2: is it fair to say if you haven't seen this one like myself, stop and go watch it (laughs) so you don't get spoiled?
1: Yes. If you care about spoilers, uh, this is not not going to be the film for you to hear discussed first. You're going to (laughs) want to give that one a watch because I'm sure that we will, uh, cover many of those twists on this podcast
2: <laughs> okay so you've been warned we're gonna spoil because i don't think you can talk about this film without talking about the twists is that fair
1: mm-hmm.
2: okay yeah. there's a lot of them so if you if you have not seen this film go watch it then come back and listen okay i didn't mean to interrupt you just go for it
1: <laughs> yeah I, I mean i think this is a prime example of film noir you know it's a very tight story. We don't see a lot of context around it. It is very much just immediately into it. We start with uh, the shooting of the police officer's partner by I keep calling them goons, but there's not really a better word for it. Like, the goons uh, doing crime. (laughs) Once again, police officer protecting a woman. They get on a train, and they gotta survive on this train until it reaches its destination. On the logline of it, it's very similar to the 90s remake. You can see how They got from point A to point B. Um, But within the story itself, the narrow margin uh, is much twistier. Uh, Immediately, there's different character dynamics going on. Uh, The woman in question, uh, Marie Windsor's character, is much more abrasive uh, openly. You still get some similar beats of uh, Charles McGraw's detective sergeant uh, having a conversation with her. That's kind of a guilt trip about his partner dying. But... Uh, it doesn't quite have the same emotional impact. Oh, she she pushes um, back. <laughs> she pushes back. Yeah. Um. And but you know we find out that there is a twist with her as well. So she's not even the woman in question. There is the second blonde woman on the train. Noirs love to have a blonde woman and a brunette, and then they both are characters in this. Um. Yeah. You know I. I go back and forth on how I feel about this because it is very emblematic of a noir and there's a lot of elements I do like about it. It is fun to see it so twisty, but having seen the remake now, <laughs> I do think that there are ways to have executed the story a little better. Um, but I don't know that that's a flaw of the movie so much as it is just a good example of what happens in the noir genre a lot when you are doing so much twisting and turning within such a tight runtime. Yeah. Um, so yeah, g- I, I g- give me an, an example. Like, yeah, yeah, give me an
2: example of what what you think um it should have done better or changed.
1: Mhm. I just you know with such a condensed runtime you do run into the problem of trying to seed things early on so that you aren't just getting blindsided by a twist. So uh for example, uh Marie Windsor is secretly a policewoman impersonating uh jacqueline white's character Anne sinclair who is the real woman with the list of names they need to get to the district attorney or the uh, courts and so she spends most of the film being very abrasive uh very uh combative trying to put on this uncaring air uh, and pushing back against uh charles McGraw's character as he's trying to protect her throughout this train and uh when it finally does get revealed that she is a policewoman in disguise she's uh been killed already she's dead and uh, we don't really learn anything before or after about you know her and how she ended up in this position. There's no hints beforehand that maybe she is more capable than just your average mobster's housewife. Um, you, there's a, a brief flash in her death scene of her picking a gun out of her purse, uh, but that doesn't really give you any clues as to what the twist of her character is going to be. And that twist doesn't have a lot of impact on the story afterwards. So for me, those kinds of twists where it is just like, well, this character was different than you thought they were going to be, can sometimes fall a little flat or just not have the impact that you would have if it had any sort of like small hint. So that on a rewatch, you're like, oh, I see how this was set up or uh, impact on characters afterwards, which this didn't really seem to have much on. Um, notably on Charles McGraw, who has been so torn up the whole film about his partner dying, who is also a police officer. Yeah. Um, it did feel a little hollow afterwards to not even get a mention for our other policewoman woman who uh, gave her life to protect Jacqueline White. They do just kind of move on afterwards. Right. She's and a there's... woman in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> noir is so good with women usually, though. There's a lot of really powerful female characters in noir films. Sometimes, well, but, but sometimes I, they veer into the femme fatale a little bit, but sometimes that works perfectly.
2: I, I think I think this one still does. I mean, um, Marie Windsor is a firecracker. Uh, mm mm-hmm. And, and oh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I watched the nineties version, obviously I've seen it before, but even in revisiting these two, I watched the nineties one, then went back to this one. And I, I will say that is one of my favorite things about the film noir, um, female leads is if you've watched a lot of movies from the forties and fifties to Brad's <laughs> point, I mean, it, a lot of their stuff is second tier, but you mm-hmm. get into this genre and they hold their own. And in, a, in a lot of cases, they just, they they drive things forward. Um, and it's and in a very smart way and commanding way that even today, I don't think you see there's like depth to it.
1: Yeah. You I mean like the femme fatale character comes from film noir. It's, yeah. That's sort of popularized. And that's just one version of the kind of like strong female characters and strong female performances you get in film noir. And this is no exception. Like Jacqueline White and Marie Windsor are both doing great performances in their respective roles and are given a lot more to do and to chew scenery wise than a lot of uh era comparable uh female roles oh, have yeah, done. Yeah. um so i don't think it's a flaw of the performances or anything i like again there's a lot that's really fantastic in this film um i think it does suffer from a, a very noir trait of we don't need to give context or preamble to this we just need twists to happen so that you're gripping the scene and you're in the moment and sometimes that works great uh and sometimes it does sort of leave you a little blindsided or make one of the 50 twists forgettable and in, in how it's executed. Okay.
2: Do, so do you find those twists more apparent when you like when you see it the first time they come at you and surprise you on mm-hmm. the second viewing? Do, I mean, I, how do I say this? Like sometimes a movie has its best impact in its first viewing. And then when mm-hmm. you watch it again and it's very twisty, you go, Oh, it's not as fun because I know what's coming. Is Is that one of these?
1: At points, I would say that this definitely falls into a bit of the latter category. Um, You know, it's that idea of suspense versus surprise, right? Right. Some of the twists in this definitely kind of fall into the surprise category of, well, we didn't give you anything to look for on a second viewing to be able to say like, oh, I see how they're setting this up. And so if you aren't surprised, then there's not really any impact behind the twist. But I do think that there is still a lot done in this film that is suspenseful and, you know, can still give some value to a second viewing, Um, particularly with Jacqueline White's character, uh, Mrs. Sinclair, like you get to see on a second viewing more of her little interactions in the background with her son and the nanny, how they're having their little journey play out as well. And when you can pay attention to a character who otherwise you might've thought was unimportant on the first viewing, I think that that still adds a lot to it. So it's, it's kind of hard to say that like I fall on one side with the narrow margin because I Mm -hmm. do feel like there's a lot of things that it's doing really well and a lot that is, just kind of unfortunately falling by the wayside uh, by the nature of the genre that it's in. Okay,
2: what about you, Brad? H- how was your viewing on this one,
0: Troy, You know how how I am. If it's a if it's a black and white film, noir-ish kind of pretentious, like I'm, I'm all over it. Yeah, but I, it, has I, a sh- I,
2: it has a shitty kid in it, so I didn't know where this was. It does end. have a shitty kid. <laughs> in
0: it. This this kid is pretty shitty. Oh, uh, no, I, <laughs> I I really I really like it. Um, now it's funny. You go from narrow margin to the narrow margin. And I think it starts to show its flaws a little bit more. Um, And I I think that's just a, they're working with like 25 more minutes. They can open up on a really strong, um, Mm -hmm. like catalyst to your film with the, with the murder and stuff. And that really kind of helps propel the story here. We're just going and we're in that house. And then the dude just, loving smoking cigars and everyone smoking cigarettes just all the time. That's another thing I love about Noirs is we are just going to smoke constantly and drink constantly. And we're going to talk about smoking and drinking all the time. Um, yeah. I do feel you know, like
2: I have a little bit of lung cancer already. Just, just watching these. While. Yeah. You get secondhand <laughs>
0: smoke from just watching this film. Um, no, it's, it's really fun. The, the twists and turns do get, I like, I love the twists with, with uh Mary and then with Jacqueline that that co- sort of switcheroo there um and then like how the end plays out where he's like shooting through the door and he's using the reflection like there's some really creative things that that are going on in this um i just think it it gets overshadowed and like for from the war like you know gets overshadowed uh from the, the remake I think the remake is is spectacular and kind of takes this formula and, and does what it's supposed to do by making it better um and, and really sort of taking the good ideas keeping those and then getting rid of the things that you know like we can make this a better story by getting rid of this and doing X and and, and really making it like a better film and I really appreciate uh, the source material. Um, because you know I I like the setting. I like being in in sort of this black and white uh sort of like 1950s. I really like that, but I can appreciate that 40 years later, we're gonna do it better, but this still doesn't mean I don't I don't like this. It, it's just really striking when you go back and you're you're watching this, like, Oh man, this is 70, 71 minutes long. Like it's, I, it's I gotta, can no. we, can we I,
2: <laughs> derail for a second? I love the fact that I've been able to watch a 70, maybe 80 minute film. I mean, all these film noir stuff. And and I know a lot of, a lot of them are shown as double features and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I love the fact that I can sit down and get a complete story in like 70 or 80 minutes. And it's good. It's like really good. Like I missed oh, yeah.
0: that. No, I like, I, I'm not complaining. I I think. Because uh, again, we're not really like messing around. Like we're, we're getting into it and, and you just propel the story and the guy's got, he's got action beats. He's got to do, he's got to figure out who is who and what is what, and, and who's the bad guy, who's the good guy and the switch. Um, I, I was actually surprised though, like this one minus like the the shootout in the cabin in the remake like the guns play way more of like a role in this one than they do in the remake um -hmm. like people are getting shot at close range and it's uh it's funny that you know we talk about violence and stuff it's like well they were doing all this stuff in 1952 or 1950 when they uh, made it so yeah gene um, hackman
2: doesn't kill well, anybody with a gun in the nineties yeah. version, but he, he <laughs> yeah. does he does kill them with the landscape,
0: I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I really I I think this is a good companion piece. I love that you can go back and watch this and then watch the remake and be like, Oh, I, I you know, I, I see why they decided to remake this. Um, because I think it's got good bones and it's obviously something that you can do better. And we see that I they did it better. Um, yeah, that's all I really got for you, buddy.
2: Okay. Do you, do you want to know how good this film is? Like how really good this film (laughs) is? I mean,
0: I watched it. I know how good it is.
2: No, no. I don't think you appreciate how good this film is (laughs) because you guys are, are just not singing that hundred percent critic praise that this thing deserves. Here's the thing after watching it and I had to go back and double check this. I'm like, wait a second. There was no score or soundtrack during the whole film. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that until the end when the credits rolled and you get to the, you know, they're walking to the courthouse and I'm like, wait a second. Where's, is there something wrong with the sound? Go back to the front. Nothing. The only music that you get in this film is through the record player.
0: It's very, it's all the move. The music is diegetic.
2: It it is. And, and what's amazing about this film is you don't like scores are really important. If you think about what John Williams has done, um, and, and some of the great, uh, I don't know, composers the the film composers, I mean, we talked about the girl with the dragon tattoo and you know, what Reznor and, uh, I can't remember his other name, uh, ended up doing for that film. And it really enhances all the mood and patterns. This thing is still super tense and it's super exciting and it doesn't rely on a score or soundtrack at all to enhance any of that. And it moves at a very brisk pace, and I think that's actually pretty darn amazing to kind of ratchet up that tension and and really make a conscious decision of, I'm not going to use a musical cue or score to help me out. I'm going to use the settings, the character, and most importantly, the dialogue. There is a reason why this thing got nominated for an Academy Award. I'm I'm going to say it has uh, some of the best film noir dialogue that you are gonna find in the genre. I mean, um, I love this whole line, which they borrow into the '90s version. I think they they have a little bit more fun with it here, which is nobody loves a fat man except the grocer or his grocer and tailor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I love that. I love I love these kind of lines. So this comes from um, Charles McGraw. And, uh, it's when, you know, somebody's asking him, did you take a bribe? Of course I've been tempted. I'm human like anybody else, but to spend the rest of my time worrying when I'll be caught up with some hoodlum holding a first mortgage of my life payable on demand. Nah, no kind of money worth that. That's fantastic dialogue. Um, there's an entire exchange between McGraw and Windsor when she finds out that there's another lady that the thugs, um, think, is actually her and she's okay with her dying and they have this, this amazing exchange and going back and forth. And she's like, why would I not be okay? I want to live. And if they kill her and I get to live, that's okay. And he's trying to, you know, wrap his head around that. Um, you know what we call that Troy? What? Fuck that bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was going to say survival instinct, but okay. That's the more street version. Fuck that bitch. (laughs) Um, but I love every exchange. I love all of the exchanges between McGraw and Windsor. Um, that tension and that chemistry and going back and forth. I mean, he it starts the film with him making an assumption of what a gangster's wife's going to be, and she lives up to that. And then she just, she takes that stereotype and runs with it and is constantly pushing him. And when the big reveal comes and you find out she's a cop, um, I think it actually has impact. Like all of the twists and turns surprised the crap out of me um, for a first-time viewing, and I was so invested in in where the story was going. And and again, it's so good that even the little shit kid, his overacting didn't take anything away. Um, but man, it's this is this is why I like this genre is this dialogue. It's the yeah, dialogue right. like and the, the pacing. The dialogue,
0: I, I think, we do need to harp. The dialogue is really spectacular. It's very rat-a-tatty as well. Oh, mm-hmm. it
2: it zings. I mean, it's um, it is the Shakespeare of film noir <laughs> um, because it just it just has a sing song pattern, and uh, I I really love McGraw's voice. It's so gruff. And I mean, he is the
0: that's the, that's whiskey and cigarettes. my yeah, friend. It is the
2: epitome <laughs> of that hard, you know, uh, boiled detective just chewing up the scenery and everybody around him. I, I absolutely loved it.
1: Yeah. In a way, both versions of The Narrow Margin do really lean on their leading man. But where I would say the Gene Hackman of it all and the sort of subdued version in the remake kind of lets his performance be the thing that ties everything together in the original it very much is the writing and the dialogue that like realizes oh, the film and makes it as fluid an experience as it is because it is fantastic dialogue
2: it is it's you could sit there it what's what's amazing about this is you know we talk about some movies where um i i think i made this comment about one false move if you take that film and shoot it in black and white i think it's just just as good and it might actually be better Maybe with some better. The, yeah, yeah. color contrast, but it, it's a perfect, you know, neo-noir. This film, you could just take the screenplay and almost turn it in word for word to a novella. And it would be a fantastic read because the script yeah. and the dialogue is so good. And you really wouldn't have to change much. Yeah. I mean, it deserves all of the accolade. It deserves William freaking doing a commentary on it. I mean, this is probably you, one of,
0: did you listen to that? commentary I got
2: through half of it. it it's really good. I got to go back and okay. watch again. My problem is I went back and, um, <laughs> as I'm trying to listen to the commentary and then you get to that sequence and some of these exchanges, I'm like, Oh, turn the commentary off. Cause I want to, I want to see that scene again. Um, cause the, the dialogue is so good. I probably watched this thing. I don't know how many times because after I, after I watched it one time and then I would go back and listen to these dialogue exchanges or watch these sequences. Uh, the other thing is this thing has some action that I think is a bit unique and unusual for its time. And specifically that hand to hand combat exchange that happens in the small compartment.
0: Mm. Um, yeah. The camera is like really in, uh, you know, you talked about the handheld shot and stuff. It's like very like proto Jason boardish in a, in a way, but not confusing. It, it not almost, confusing, no. yeah, yeah, it
2: feels like, now there are some cuts in there and maybe well, Sophia, because cutting
0: film was like a really big deal back in the 50s so you know all those ra- massive cuts would be hard but yeah you're right like it, it's handheld it's in your face it's uh it almost feels like one take oh uh, yeah it's almost yeah it's almost a wonder in a way like that's crazy yeah i didn't know Sophia. I, I know you
2: do a lot of video editing i wanted to get your opinion on that entire sequence um and what you thought about it like professionally how they put that together
1: Yeah, I mean, working with anytime you're working with a technique or a technology that is particularly new or maybe not as widely used yet, you're going to run into a lot of creativity in the editing space. Would be the nicest way to put it, but I think they do a really good job of executing it here. Um, What I particularly liked about the combination of the cuts that seem so fluid as to make it seem like a oneer and the handheld camera is it creates this very like claustrophobic feeling. And, you know, we're in a train. We know that it's not a lot of space. And once again, rather than worrying about specific geography, you know, which car is everyone in, they're relying on more of the cinematography and the editing to create this claustrophobic feelings so that you really feel like you're trapped by the train, just like yeah. the characters are. And I mm. think that that's a really skillfully executed and clever uh, way to go about it.
2: I, I agree. And, and even the final showdown where you get him taking, uh, you know, her hostage you got McGraw um, on the other side. He's looking at the window to get placement. He's trying to get um, him over to a section of the cabin so he can shoot through the wall. I mean, it's it's not the the big action, you know, extravaganza you get in the remake on top of a train, but I like the fact that it again uses the compartment space and that setting to develop mm-hmm. something that's kind of thrilling and the payoff is fantastic on it. So Oh yeah. Uh, it 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 surprisingly is a, a pretty violent movie. Um, probably not for film noir, but it, it shocked me to kind of watch this and some of the other movies I've watched. You you just didn't have this much action kind of taking place in it. And um, I'm I'm always a big fan when action can be used in such a way where it's different, it feels unique, and um, it's either a result of the environment, the camera work, or the performances or, or the skill set. To me, this has got a little bit of everything, and I was surprised to see it for a 1952 film. Like this, really shocked me how good um, that sequence was.
1: Yeah, the, that end sequence where he's using the reflection to shoot through the room is one of my all-time favorite, like action set pieces, maybe in all of movie making, not just film noir, because it's just so clever. It's such a smart way to use the environment and to get around the constraints that you already put on and. It, in the same way that the train fight on top of the remake is this great action sequence uh, because they're very cleverly using the geography. They're yeah. doing that once again in the original, and I it pull it off to spectacular effect.
0: I, I have a question about that sequence. So if the one side can see the reflection, could the other side see the reflection? If sure. But
1: I mean,
2: he obviously was, was too, not paying attention. Yeah. I mean, he's he's holding a woman hostage, gun to her head, trying to talk through the door. Oh, no, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Mm-hmm um again with the dialogue though like he's kind of you get the idea that um Charles McGraw is almost overacting it to tell Jacqueline White like oh play along keep him from noticing and in that way like I kind of even buy more that he wouldn't notice the reflection yeah and vice versa uh because they're sort of in on it which I think is a great uh great choice
0: (laughs) so I'm not trying to shit on like your your favorite sequence (laughs) of film (laughs) no it's uh, but I, again,
2: it's, uh, it's one of those things where you could look at that and go, well, that's an idiot plot moment, right? Where all the guy has to do is look out the window. He would see that there's a reflection. So he might be looking, but he doesn't because everybody's caught up in that moment. Uh, and, and again, I I think in lesser hands, somebody would have put some intense soundtrack behind it or or something of that nature. And the fact that the dialogue in and of itself not only represents you finding out about the characters and advancing the plot, but the dialogue itself is almost the soundtrack. I mean, you don't want to hear music. You want to hear these people talking and um, saying everything that's on these just magnificent pages of script. Uh, And, and I thought that was a really bold move to kind of go, let's just cut this down. So everybody is really concentrating on what's being said and what's being done and use that to heighten the scenarios and, and again, I, this is, this is, <laughs> it's just already become one of my favorite film noirs. Um, for me, it would definitely be in the top 10 now.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I, yeah. I don't know if I would say that even though it's on a train and I do like trains.
2: <laughs> and and it could be the second or third viewing. Maybe the polish, um, diminishes a little bit, but a recency I see
0: bias for you.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm. I guarantee it's recency bias. I, I love the Gene Hackman one so much. And it was one of those, even when it's playing the theaters, I, I felt like I was championing it and everybody's like, nah, I don't want to see old man on a train. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it was a good film and I don't know why I never took the time out to see the original, but I, I don't know. I just, I really enjoy this thing. Like I could see myself watching this um, on an annual November basis when you're going back and, and revisiting like your favorite classics.
0: Yeah, yeah I think my it's, favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. Uh, sh- <laughs> what, what would you call it? What, Old Man on a Train? Old Man on <laughs> a Train? sequel to Strangers
1: on a Plane, or Train. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of North by Northwest when I was watching uh, both versions of this little bit of like, man, trains really are the best place to put an older actor and just like let them have a good time. <laughs> tra- Strangers on a Train is awesome. Strangers
2: also on a Train. train. One, of, one of the best, <laughs> if not the best train <laughs> film. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I just, I love this thing. Like, I, I'm so happy that uh, it... it Receive the critical praise and everything it does from, I guess the the film noir uh, affectionists. and uh, I, I would the minute this thing gets some kind of special whatever Blu-ray edition that somebody's going to put out, it's like yeah I'll buy three. I don't know I I love this thing, <laughs> it's so good.
1: Yeah, I I like this one a lot. I think there's a lot to love about it, and if you're looking for like an entry point into film noir, it's a pretty good one because it is a very driving story, even if it is not like you know there's no office there's no blinds maybe arguably there's a MacGuffin, but you know there's some of those elements that you think of for the the hard-boiled detective noir might not be there but i think it's got all of the style and all of the storytelling that the genre has in spades and it's a great first watch i know it's a a good second watch too i think you just start to see the cracks a little bit more i still love this movie um I, i don't know if i would recommend it for like third or fourth in the same way that i might go back to the remake more frequently no,
2: that's fair. I, I mean, I don't think you can sit here and kind of go, which one's better than the other? I think they're both fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. And, why and, choose? You can watch them both. Yeah, and, and each one tries fair. to do something different. I, I love the fact that the 90s one changes the dynamic of the characters.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and like you said, Sophia, it's not probably relying on the twist, but it's a lot allowing some of these characters to breathe a little bit. Now, the 90s doesn't give you the character development that maybe Roger Ebert was looking for. Um, but it does do something different, but yet still retain some of the things that made, you know, the original 52 version so good.
1: Yeah, I don't know if my life as a human being gives the character development that Roger Ebert would have been looking for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, a good point. Both- Yeah, they're both doing really fantastic things, uh, and you can see why the remake made the choices it did, and what it kept from the original, and what it changed, and you can see why the original was so gripping when someone would have seen it in theaters in the 50s, and why it is so much longevity today, and would have been something that, you know, you see and you think, I gotta remake this. Um, So I think this is a great double feature situation, which is how I watch these. Uh, I can't recommend that enough. It was... You'd think, oh, well, it's two of the same story, aren't I going to get bored of it? Uh, by the time I'm at the second part of that double feature, no, no, no. Uh, if anything, it just makes watching both of them better because you have these points to compare and contrast to, and still things are twisty and surprising because they're definitely not the exact same story.
2: Oh, heck yeah! I,
0: I, I mean, I did that yeah, immediately, that awesome. like, I watched them back to back, <laughs> and like, immediately was like, oh, this one's got this one, this one's got this one. Like, mm-hmm. it that's a perfect way to watch these,
2: yeah. It, it, I really appreciate like anybody complains about remakes, et cetera. I would definitely use this as an example of they're not all bad. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, they can, they can take it into a different place, sometimes make it better. Um, maybe in my opinion right now, because of that recency bias, I, w- I would mm-hmm. say, um, the original is is the better one, but I, I don't know. You, you can, in this case you can have two number ones, right? Even though it's 11, but, um, <laughs> so we are the crown. Yeah. Are, are we all just saying this one's it's not a bomb as well? Not a bomb.
1: not a bomb. Not a bomb.
2: Okay.
0: Well, Troy, it was also not, a, I don't think it was a bomb, but you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I,
2: obviously, <laughs> we broke not that critically. Rule, rule, so. How many how many movies have we picked up where the critics' response was
0: 100%? Not many.
2: Is this the first one?
0: It could be. It could be. I was thinking about that. I don't, I can't think of another one. Okay. Uh, I got
2: a little bit of listener feedback. You want me to get through that real quick? Go right ahead. Okay. First one's from Patrick. Hi, guys. Love the show this week about The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Great movie. Great acting by Rooney Mara. Somewhat great acting by Daniel Craig. But hey, he's Daniel Craig. He can do no wrong in my book. I'd agree with you, Patrick. My thought is around David Fincher and the multiple great films that he has directed. During your conversation, you mentioned Seven, The Social Network, Zodiac Fight Club. You even mentioned Panic Room. But one movie that you didn't mention, which I believe is one of the best films, is The Game with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. This was after his success with seven and before Fight Club, but was an absolutely marvelous thriller where you legitimately had no idea what was going to happen next. I believe it is one of the most underrated films, and I believe it needs to be discussed in the same echelon as The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Zodiac. Thanks, guys. Pat, what do you guys I mean, land I on would, the game?
0: I, I love the I mean, to me, I I would arguably say Fincher has 11 perfect films out of 12. Oh, Okay.
2: That's that's high praise. What about you, Sophia? You-
0: well, maybe ten. I I wouldn't say Alien Three is perfect. So ten out of twelve. I li- I do like Alien Three, but ten out of twelve Any bad, Troy.
2: Okay. You, do you do you agree with that sentiment, Sophia? Or I don't
1: know if I'd say it's ten perfect films out of twelve, but they're ten pretty pretty good films at the very really? least.
0: <laughs> I
2: was waiting for it to be like, Fincher's overrated.
1: (laughs) I would
0: listen to an argument of any of those 10 being his best film. Like if someone said the game was their favorite David Fincher film, I would say, okay, Panic Room. Again, I would say, oh, yeah. Now, if someone said Benjamin Button, I'd be like, well, you're out of your freaking mind. But, you
2: know. I was hoping Sophia would be like, no, that's his best one. Mm. We got to find somebody who really loves that film. Yeah. get them on here they don't so exist any
1: benjamin sure. button super fans listening now your time to shine yeah please
2: write in <laughs> yeah drive drive brad nuts uh next one's from will you guys missed an earlier fincher resner connection in the girl with the dragon tattoo review one of the coil remixes of the nine inch nails song closer is used in the opening credits of seven as an aside the band coil that remixed the song did the original soundtrack for hellraiser that was famously not used because Barker thought the score was so scary that it would distract from the film. Did you, did you know that about Hellraiser,
0: Brad? I I really don't know much about Hellraiser to be perfectly honest with you. Um, no, I, I, didn't. I didn't.
2: Yeah. Um, I had a nice little exchange with Will. He says, if anybody's interested in that um soundtrack you can find it youtube it it's readily available out there if you want to listen to I will check it out what was so yeah. scary that they couldn't include
0: in the film Clive Barker is afraid of it then it's got to be pretty cuz that Horrific. dudes up <laughs>
2: yeah uh last one from Randy so this is a typical Randy email he just starts masking threshold i assume that's the title of a movie he's recommending masking threshold it says go in blind an absolutely unique film. I'm unaware of any other film that has the narrative structure that this one does, visually and narratively compelling as it slowly takes you to the worst places. I won't bet on whether anybody would love it, but I would bet that anyone who sees it will never forget it. It's on drafthousefilms.com or it can be found digitally for very cheap on most platforms, iTunes, Amazon, etc. So, right. uh Brad and I have known Randy for a while. One thing I will tell you, Um, whatever, about a thousand. Yeah. Whatever Randy tells you to watch, it will be memorable. Um, I can't say it'll be, maybe
0: that's the way to put it memorable. (laughs) He's batting a thousand
2: memorable. He's, he's recommended some stuff where I'm like, Ooh, I've never seen that before. And, uh, it was good, but yeah, I've never seen that before that. Randy's, Randy's good at that suggestion,
0: but I mean, he did do, he, he brought br- brings me to my life. So I can't, I can't hate.
2: Yeah. He's, he, he, he's winning. He's winning at life. Uh, <laughs> Sophia, you are involved in like so much. Um, do you want to just give everybody a quick rundown of where they can find you and, uh, all of the work that you're putting out there?
1: Yeah. Um, I am a video editor and podcast producer, so infinite podcasts and video content that i've been involved in um my personal show and the one that uh these guys have been lovely guests on is uh movie struck which is a podcast about movies and people who watch them uh and you can find it on all audio platforms by searching movie struck uh, i'm also on a couple other podcasts but the other notable one is rolling with difficulty which is a D 5e actual play we're doing a planescape spell mashup and our fifth Uh, And final season in our current main campaign is coming up in January, so I'm really excited for that Uh, and kind of tied in with that. I think we mentioned at the top of this episode, uh, myself and the entire Rolling with Difficulty cast are going to be at PAX Unplugged in Philly. Uh, It's like two weeks from the time of recording uh, at the beginning of December, and I am so, so excited for this because everyone has to come to my hometown for once.
2: (laughs) Philly's a great place. I mean, don't. I'm not saying like run around at 2 a.m. or anything, but don't let the, don't, I, I got asked the other day about Baltimore, Philly and some of these areas and I'm like, oh, it's so dangerous. I'm like, look, any city's dangerous if you're going in the wrong spot, just um, don't let it deter you from exploring something like Philadelphia is just absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yeah. um, if if I didn't have something going on in D.C. that weekend, I would be at PAX because uh, I, I didn't even know about it, but. Yeah, I um, I'm kind of bummed because um, I I love that podcast. It's it's a lot of fun. I love Movie Struck too. I mean, we're big fans, obviously. Um, but yeah, Great check
1: episode about the eight diagram pole fighter of Movie Struck for anyone who's a, a fan of this podcast and might want to.
2: Yeah, your latest one is Spider Man, right? <laughs> the uh, yes, we covered
1: uh, across the Spider Verse. Um, I had a guest who's also a player on Rolling with Difficulty, uh, Wally. We done into the Spider Verse. Uh, way back when, and then the strike happened, and I was taking a hiatus from Struck work, and since that has lifted, we've been pulling on all the guests who told me they wanted to do something that I told them they couldn't do until the strike was over, so we're going to have a string of maybe recent releases coming up on Movie Struck in the next couple weeks.
2: That's awesome. I I can't wait.
0: I was very jealous of the guy who came on after us. He did Metropolis, and I was like, we should have done Metropolis. (laughs) God damn it. What do you get? We... We did a di- diagram. Oh,
2: I know we did. We, okay. we did a great one. Pretty we did valid. a great one. Uh,
0: Metropolis. you,
1: you just <laughs> well, won it all. Brad. You will definitely be being invited back, so uh, I'm sure. We already we'll got our film already lined up. So, we're oh ready. yeah, we do.
2: Yeah, we're, we're ready. ready to go. Um, Brad, how do people get a hold of us to send us some uh, suggestions? We're putting. We're actually working on 2024 lineup right now. Yeah, well, which is,
0: we're like way into 2024 now. Yeah. That's, that's not crazy. a bomb pod at gmail.com or you can head over to not a bomb podcast. Uh, hit the contact us button or hit us up on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Troy. Yes. Next week. Sadly, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Sadly, uh film noir November comes to an end, but we're bringing it full circle. We started off with a film that starred Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton and uh that's one false move so we are closing it with a simple plan yeah it's directed by one sam Raimi.
2: that's how you close in november out buddy
0: <laughs> it's a full that's a full circle it's 360 degrees my friend
2: yeah and i i don't can't even tell you what the release schedule is um because we we've done some extra stuff i think by the time you listen to this our other episode would have been out to our special episode
0: yeah, so we just did another episode with Michelle Meek, Professor uh, talked,
2: Michelle Meek. Oh,
0: I'm sorry, Dr. 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 Doctor, 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 sure. doctor uh, Michelle yes, Meek. Dr. Um we did uh, Loverboy from 1989 and we talked about uh No Hard Feelings from 2023. And we broke down some of the uh some of the themes in both of those films and as always Michelle uh brought her A game and I felt really dumb. We got schooled.
2: Anyway. It was, we went, we went to school literally. We, I think we <laughs> labeled that uh, cougar rom-coms is what the I subgenre or was. Or
0: cougar comedies. Yeah. 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 Cougar comedies. <laughs>
2: and then, um, real quick, I, I just want to say, and, uh, a big thank you. Cause I think by the time this is released, Thanksgiving will have passed. We are so super thankful for just the community that um, has developed as a result of this little project that started out of COVID and um, we're having a lot of fun with it. I want to, I'm hoping everybody got some time away from work, whatever it is, and just concentrated on you and the family. But um, just know anybody listening, we consider you family and we're very thankful for you. And Sophia, I, I, you know, again, this has been a great year because we were introduced to you and we started this friendship. Oh. <laughs> and uh, it's it, again, it's it's so awesome to do this simply because of the people you run across and you meet. And we hope to be doing this many more years and, me- and meeting many more new people too. But um, on top of that, uh, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving with our 11th experiment for breaking Brad. W- what is that, we- Brad?
0: <laughs> we are. We're doing uh, Thanksgiving. Ah. Uh, which I watched the first ten minutes of it, and uh, yeah, I'm glad no one else is in the room with me. And then we're doing <laughs> Thanks Killing Three, which is actually the sequel, which has a plot around finding this Thanks Killing Two. I I don't know, I don't know, but we're we're gonna do that. We're gonna record that next week, and it'll be out by the end of the month. So yes, yeah, so you're getting a lot of uh, Troy and I uh, this month. So, but yeah, I echo Troy. Um, thank you all for for listening, and it's been a wonderful year. And we're very thankful for all of our our fans, which is a weird thing to say or, or friends. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a year, but we keep uh, we keep on trucking, Troy.
2: Yes what what else should they be listening to? Um, yeah, in terms uh, of they our, go our and listen to
0: the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. Watch Skip. Plus uh the VHS files, which when we talked to Josh, he said they're gonna be coming back pretty soon. Night of the Living Podcast, the Backlook Cinema Podcast, the Mixed 8 Podcast, Raiders of the Podcast, and Movie Struck. Yes. As well. I think John <laughs> is
2: back too on YouTube with uh now for something a little bit different. Correct. Yes. So we're yep. happy to to see your face again, John. Um Sophia is always, my goodness, Time flies when you're on the show. It's so much fun. I I thought we were talking like for 15 minutes and it, it went for a good hour and a half, man
1: it's my pleasure thank you guys so much for having me i love coming on um it's like you were saying the best part of being in podcasts is getting to meet other cool people and talk with them about the things that you're into and this is just always a blast for me so thank you so much for having me on again
2: awesome well i don't know if you're listening in the morning the afternoon or evening thanks for listening to this show go out and watch narrow margin and the narrow margin Uh, maybe squeeze in a simple plan and get as much film noir as possible in the remaining months of November. And uh, we'll catch you next week.
0: Don't lose your head.